Welcome to Threshold Stories. I'm Jeff Corey, your host. Today we're talking to Amy Dixon, blind paratriathlete and U.S. Olympic hopeful for the summer of 21 in Tokyo. Amy's preparing for an epic event, but she's going to try to do it most uniquely in that Amy is almost completely blind. Amy's going to share her story with you about what life has been like and how she's taken care of living in a world where she doesn't get to see things the way you and I do. Amy Dixon, welcome to Threshold Stories. Well, thank you for having me. It's um interesting to have somebody like you on the on the on the on the line here because a lot of times I do these as face to face as much as I can, but since the camera's not rolling, I'm getting to do this in basically my grunge clothes. So I haven't shaved. The COVID effect of working from home all the time has um allowed me to be a bum today. So I just appreciate you letting me bum out. Cool. Same. So I'm, in, um, uh, I'm still in my sweaty uh, training clothes, actually, right. that are now dried sweat. Yeah. So you're in California right now, and it's 2 in the afternoon. It's a Friday. And um, yes. when I buzzed you at the start of this, um, you said, great, looking forward to it. I'm eating lunch now. And um, <laughs> yeah. that was 2 in the afternoon. And when, you know, when I was chatting with you beforehand, I said, all right, you must be training. And um, yes. so walk, th- walk, your, walk us through, completely out of context, um, what have you been doing this last week for training? Oof, uh, a lot of volume. We're work- the the blessing and the curse of the Olympics and Paralympics being postponed for an entire year. So mm-hmm. it's now going to be uh, August 29th of, of next year. Mm-hmm. Um, is that um, there were some holes in my fitness that we didn't have the luxury to work on uh, mm-hmm. because of the interest of time. Because you know the games was supposed to be coming up in four months. Right. Um, and now that's not the case. And so you know we were really focusing on top end speed and and a lot of. Uh, threshold and super threshold kind of uh, kind mm-hmm, of work and mm-hmm. so now uh, what we have noticed is that I have something called cardiac drift and that is sure. um, you know a, a sign of a lack of in- endurance and that kind of like la- lasts like 45 to 45 minutes to an hour um, at like a steady state mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I've never had the time or you know luxury of being able to work on that kind of thing because um uh, event know, after event after event. Yeah, event after event after event. And usually in my off season, you know, I have a, a rare disease and um, uh, spoiler alert, I'm blind. Um, and I have had 33 surgeries to save my vision and usually have a lot of those surgeries in the off season, which is when we would normally be working on those base miles. So mm-hmm. I, you know, I've been busy recovering from surgery rather than actually be training um, during that like November, December time when we would normally be working on this kind of thing. So, um, so now we have the time. And so it's been a lot of uh, zone two, really boring, long stuff, uh, you know, 90 minutes zone two, um, working on saddle fit, working on bike fit. Um, mm-hmm. uh, let's see. Um, a lot of long, slow distance, which as a sprint distance athlete is like a, akin to torture. Right. Um, I was like, oh my gosh, how do people do Ironman? <laughs> so, so, hold, so hold us through. Yeah, like, like, oh, when you retire from sprint distance triathlon as a professional athlete, do you want to do Ironman? I'm like, hell no. <laughs> so before we jump over to some of the pieces of your story, that includes the blindness story. Um, Geek out for us for a little bit. How, what, what did you, you said a lot of unfun zone two today. Actually, no, unfun no, that, means zone like, one. Earlier in the week was. So like Monday, I had a 90 uh-huh. minute uh, zone two run uh, as nine minute run, one minute walk uh, for, for uh, a, a minute, an hour and 35 minutes. Uh, uh-huh. And then strength, strength training. Um, and then an easy zone two, one hour bike. Um, and then Tuesday was a 45 minute activation run with some strides at the end. So just again, zone two, super conversational, uh, and then like four, four by a hundred meter strides to finish it off. Just was like get the legs turning over a little bit. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and then an easy, um, technique focused swim, um, I found access to a private pool in somebody's backyard. So that's Jeez, 18 Louise. yards. Yeah. So it's an 18 yard pool, not ideal, but it's, it's at the pool. So, uh, I did like 2,300 yards there. Um, so you hold back up, back up. You're that now you're hitting truly on the boring. You did 2,300 yards in an 18 yard pool. So I read this story of a guy who ran a marathon just doing the same block in New York city, 10th of a mile, right turn, 10th of a mile, right turn. Gosh, that sounds so similar. It's not, it's not as bad as you think. It's 13 strokes to the wall. Uh, and, um, and so that's not, you know, and normally in a 25 yard pool, I'm at 17 strokes. So, 
it's actually not as bad as it sounds. Um, you know, it's, I, I'm a little nervous tomorrow. I have some speed work. So speed work in a short pool is going to be interesting. But like, you know, if you're focusing on technique and drill and zone two effort, then it's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so tomorrow will be the real test. I'll let you know how that goes. Right. And then, um, so yeah, so that's Tuesday was, was technique, uh, the 45 minute zone two run with strides and then a 90 minute, uh, zone two bike, with some efforts in there at like, you know, 75, 85%, you know, like five minutes here, five minutes there, nothing crazy. And we weren't re- reinventing the wheel. And then Wednesday is, uh, was mm-hmm. still repeats, uh, on the treadmill, uh, in the garage. So, uh, three minutes at 5%, uh, three rounds of that. And then running downhill, uh, at speed for mm. two minutes. Um, and then so at speed, meaning at race pace speed. Yeah, like just just about race pace, you know, yeah. just letting the legs go, kind of relaxed. But it feels like a zone two effort because you're going downhill. So it, it, mm-hmm. it's actually a pretty relaxed, you know. Where does your angst on that one to ten scale when you do that? My my my. When you're going angst, downhill, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh yeah, as a blind person, it's horrible. Um, I, I'm that's what I'm thinking. I can't imagine. I mean, as I'm, yeah, I got I, full vision. I I I I, I, I have angst. Yeah, no, out, outdoors it's terrible. Indoors it's great because, you know, it's a, you know I'm, I'm only going to run into the bar in front of me. <laughs> and then, um, so, hill repeats, then I had uh, strength training, and then I had, um, again, an hour easy zone two bike. And then yesterday was uh, a nice tandem ride, two hours outside, again, zone two. Uh, that was a rare treat. I don't normally get outside on the tandem, maybe, maybe once every six weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, I get outside on the bike and then, um, beautiful day for that. And it's hard cause there's a lot of traffic lights up and down the coast here. And, uh, so, you know, it's hard to keep a consistent effort, but you know, we, we did the best we could given, sure. you know, the, the terrain we had and, um, the, uh, another 2,300 yard swim yesterday. And that was, uh, some 400s in there. So what's crazy. the, where does, I keep jumping in here. What's the point of 2,300? Where did that number come from? Um, we're working our way up from, we were at 1700 to start a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. So I just got back in the pool. So we're incrementally working our way up. You know, normally I swim about 4,000 yards, uh, five or six days a week. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're, we're working back up to that. All right. So everybody right listening that that's something like 20 to 25,000 yards a week of swimming yeah. in order to yep. be a, an Olympic grade triathlete. So uh, there's yeah. a lot of yeah. swimmers, you know, people who have tried out for the Olympic team and made many cuts and they're, they don't have that volume. That's pretty crazy. Yeah, That's amazing. I, I, swim, swim volume is really, really important. And, and honestly, it's the, the quickest way to, to get you fit without, without being as taxing mm-hmm. on the body. And then, um, uh, what else? So we did, oh, and then, uh, oh, and then another 45 minute, again, easy run yesterday. And then this morning I just did 12 by 400, uh, 400 meter efforts on the road with a friend of mine guiding me on his bike on his cruiser bicycle next to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we did it on a, on a one way street going back and forth, uh, up and down the road. Okay. Um, and it was so, not flat. So it was not like a true, you know, like a track because all the tracks are closed right now. But, um, actually I, ha- I had the second fastest 400 I've ever run today, which I'm, so I'll take woo-hoo! it. Downhill. It was probably on the downhill. I'm guessing. Just <laughs> shut up. Just <laughs> shut that. Just shut up. That, that you got to stop there. You got to say, look at this. Right. And then, and then not putting in all these footnotes. Right, right, right. I'm like, hmm, I wonder if that was the downhill effort. But, yeah. but you got to learn from our politicians. Like, just say it and don't clause yeah, it. Don't footnote yeah, it. And just say, hey, by the way. Yeah, yeah. So it's all right, so your like session count over. per week, your session count per week is like what? It's got to be between 15 and 20. Uh, I, I have three a day, pretty much every day. And do you have, so what's your, yeah. so how many days in your ATP? Like, do you have a 21 day cycle before you get a day off or what's your, what's your, what is yours? Worth? No, actually I have a new coach and I have had every Sunday off since I started with him, which is like unbelievable. I've never had that before. So is there a spiritual uh, connection there? Like, is that keeping the Sabbath or you just take Sunday off? Cause if you don't, your body's going to blow. Um, I don't know. Um, <laughs> right now I, I, I like, I, I don't know. Um, it's not going to last. I know once we get back into the thick of things, but for right now, you know, and I have an optional 30 minute run on Sundays, which you, he says, mm-hmm. if I want to go for a walk with my dog, do that. Um, he says, you know, if the legs feel great, go for the run. If not, just go for a walk. Um, active recovery day. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, I'm getting to go out on my mountain bike tandem this Sunday for a fun active recovery ride. Um, so contextually, so I keep interrupting because you say things that are very interesting to the, to the, um, armchair triathlete, even, I don't even know what an armchair triathlete is, but so I get it. mountain, tandem it mountain bike. When you think mountain bike, yeah. you think, um, anything but tandem, <laughs> you think I'm wrecking every 30 minutes if I'm going hard. 
And now yeah. you're not, you're not making the left turn, right turn on the mountain bike. Somebody uh, else we is. are. <laughs> we are. It's just, it's just nine feet long. <laughs> the mountain like bike is nine up. feet long. Yeah. So you got, you got to send me a picture of you mountain biking when we're done here. Cause that is amazing. Cause contextually yeah, is, everybody on this probably, there's probably one person who knows what you're talking about tops. The other 99,000 <laughs> of us don't. Yeah. I, I am stupid or crazy enough. I was the first uh, blind female triathlete to do an Xterra uh, triathlon on a bike uh, up in um, Lake Tahoe a couple of years ago. And it was wow. the most fun I've ever had in a race. It was just such a blast. And I ended up winning, which is kind of funny. Um, because that thing goes uphill like a tank. I mean, it weighs like 50 pounds. So we're getting cops like Holy cow. people on single bikes. I was like waving at people. I'm going, this sucks. This really sucks. And then finally on the descent, I was like, oh, okay. We go a lot faster downhill too, though. <laughs> so. All right. So Amy, let me jump to a little bit of the script stuff on the Olympic side of things. So obviously it got kaputzed for a year. Um, yeah. Did you get any events in in 2020 before the sky fell? Thank God, yes. Um, I, we, Kirsten, who is my guide, so I race with a sighted guide. I'm visually impaired, uh, so I've got 2% of I promise we're going to get there. We're going to, I promise yeah, that's yeah. part, so, that's my question, so, like three. I'm trying to get other Yeah, stuff. so, um, so I raced with Kirsten mm-hmm. in, uh, Devonport, Australia on the island of Tasmania on, um, February 28th. Were you and, underwhelmed uh, at the size of the actual Tasmanian devil when you got to see one? And realized I that was. they're really tiny. Yeah. I know. I just I, that broke my heart. I was one of the, the comics. Always made it seem like it was this weapon of like, mass destruction. I was all excited, like get attacked by one of these things, and I'm like, oh, they're really cute, actually. <laughs> so you raced there in their equivalent of the summertime, then? I did. It was hot as heck and windy as heck, and Ugh. big, big surf, big, big waves, and. It was Kona-like winds. It was literally a crosswind. People were getting blown off the course. People were crashing everywhere. So for the triathletes listening in here, (laughs) a lot of times you pick wheel types based on conditions, right? How big, Mm -hmm. how many 80 mil versus metal versus 30 mil zip, 303 versus 808, right? You know what I'm talking about. On a tandem, is that concern exist or is it not the same? It does and it doesn't. I mean, because you have double the weight on the bike. So the bike holds the road a lot better, but it's mm-hmm. like a tractor trailer. So it's like, <laughs> you know, you imagine a tractor trailer getting pushed sideways on a highway. It's the same idea. You've got more surface area. So, okay. I mean, you are going to get pushed laterally really hard. And so you have to have the person who's in charge of piloting the bike has to have incredible upper body strength to hold that, hold your line. So, yeah, it, wow. was, very, it was really challenging. I was very impressed with, with Kirsten on that day. So were there hills? Like, did you start pushing any speeds? Okay. No, it was flat. It was flat and very technical um, and a multi-loop course. And so it was a lot of overtaking. It was a lot of um, strategy and planning. And it's, we're in a, a paratriathlon is non-draft legal. So you have to really, and when you have a multi-lap course like that, it's very hard to stay out of people's draft zone. So it's really, you know, so you're constantly either having to like make, decisions where you're going to burn a match to get around somebody Mm -hmm. or like sit back. So, and it was a really, it was a horse race. It was, which was super fun. It was a bike race where it was, uh, us one, two, three, uh, with, uh, the Japanese girl and the Ukrainian girl right on my wheel and, uh, or as close as they legally could be on my wheel. And so we had to fight for every meter of, of, uh, of road, uh, on that day. So it truly got down to the run then. Yeah, it did. And then I learned it was actually the best race I've ever had in, in that um, mm-hmm. definitely not the fastest run I've had, but the most strategic run uh, that I've ever had. And I ended up making some really good decisions where we had such a nasty headwind. I was like, this Ukrainian girl is 20 years younger than me. I'm going to let her go in front and take the headwind. And, and I thought about I thought about Gwen Jorgensen in Rio when she was having that uh, conversation with Nicholas Spierig and the two of them were going back and forth and, and they were like arguing about who wanted to go in front. She's like, no, after you, you've already won a medal at the Olympics. She's like, no, after you, you're younger. And I was like, you know what? That's a really good idea. Why am I going to work my butt off when this girl can absolutely like blow herself up and get in front of me (laughs) and I will sit back here. And she, I knew, I knew historically that she's much slower than me on the run. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. so I, I didn't, you know, it's always hard. It's harder to be in front. It really is harder to be in front because you don't know what they're doing or how they're feeling back there. Pacing pacing becomes a trip to Vegas when you're in front. Oh, it's so, you know, and I felt like I was at a suicide pace and I was at the, for the first mile and, Mm -hmm. and I was like, this is not sustainable. So I literally just, 
put the brakes on. I tucked behind her and I was like, and she was so shocked. And then all of a sudden the pace slowed down like almost 30 seconds per mile. And Kirsten goes, you know, this is like 30 seconds slower than your normal race pace. I said, yup, <laughs> I know. <laughs> and let's enjoy it while we can. And so um, I waited until there was, and then I just caught my breath, relaxed, settled into a rhythm. And I waited until there was 800 meters left. And then I just dropped They'd her. light him up. Yeah, it was super fun. So that was that was a great race for us, and and it was the only race that we got in in uh, twenty twenty. Uh, that but it was a very high points race, so it was an important one. Um, mm -hmm. And we actually flew to Florida after that, after Australia, to race in the Pan American Championships. And the day before the race, the race got called, so we got right. sent home. So what else would have been on your twenty twenty schedule other than the Olympics? So we would have raced Pan Ams in Sarasota, Florida, mm -hmm. and the following weekend we had another World Cup in Sarasota, Florida, and then from there we were going to head to Yokohama, Japan on May 17th. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, no, excuse me, May 3rd we had World Championships, World Championships scheduled in Milan, then Yokohama on May 17th, and then Montreal on uh, June 23rd or 26th, and that would have been the final qualifier for Tokyo. So you still had a half dozen events. Yeah. Yep. Wow. And um, yeah. you're, obviously your coach is working with you saying, hey, we're not going to peak anytime soon, by the way. so Yeah, we, we, there's nothing on it. The only thing that's on the calendar right now, which is kind of a joke, is um, it, they still have nationals, uh, paratriathlon nationals scheduled for July 18th at, at that legacy triathlon that mm -hmm. USAT is putting on mm -hmm. in Long Beach, California. But, uh, you know, 90% sure that's going to get postponed. So, yeah, well, Cal you know, State, you know, the Cal State, College system already put the kibosh on um, fall classes. Yeah. So we've already yeah. got you've so already got the, your the local government in the way. So, yeah. Yeah. So, so let's. I mean, it would be great if it happened. You know, the 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 thought process is well, paratriathlon is such a small segment of the race that you know logistically they probably could hold it safely with social distancing because mm -hmm. of the limited amount of entries. But to have the whole age group not or a whole age group race going on there with you know a couple thousand entries, that would be very very challenging. So we're sort of in a holding pattern and wait and see to see what happens mm -hmm. and, and what the decision is. The backup plan apparently is to try to hold it in possibly Florida in September, which is a miserable thought. So, Dick. Well, yeah, age grouper stuff, they're discussing moving things to places like Alabama and nationals oh, yeah. for long courses in November in Miami. So hot, hot, hot is the theme of the, the, theme of the year, yeah. I think. And the biggest problem with the Florida races in the fall is that the water quality, you know, if it's a freshwater race, if it's in a lake like Claremont or in um, Sarasota, is the water quality is an issue. And it usually becomes a duathlon. So that's not ideal mm -hmm. either. Now, yeah. So we're going to jump now through the story that, you know, you've told too many times to count. Um, <laughs> but the audience probably doesn't know it, and they probably want to hear it from you as opposed to some third-party 60 Minutes-esque kind of presentation. And since we're kind of shooting from the hip... Um, I, wanted, I want you to dive a bit now into some of the, the, the feeling stuff that you went through because that's kind of where people connect with other people in this world, not so much on the successes, but the negatives just go with it. So you start losing your vision as an early adult, right? Early 20-something. So take us through that. What were some of those early feelings you had about why me, why am I losing my vision now? So, yeah, so I got diagnosed at age 22 with a rare form of uveitis, an inflammatory autoimmune eye disease. Um, that was guaranteed to take my sight. And um, at the time, there was no known treatment other than high-dose steroids. And um, uh, they, they were experimenting with chemotherapy mm -hmm. back then, but it wasn't really a, a, a known course of treatment yet. Mm -hmm. And so it was a pretty big blow. I was, you know, work, working my way through college um, at mm -hmm. the University of Connecticut studying pharmacy. And my dream was mm -hmm. to become a researcher in, um, and work on, actually, ironically, viruses, on, on retroviruses like HIV and things like that mm -hmm. um, in a lab. And um, that was not going to be possible because I couldn't see through a microscope anymore. So very disappointed, and I didn't want to be a pill pusher, like working behind a counter at CVS. And also, I didn't know how that was going to work because if I can't see, like, there nobody's going to hire me. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, my a lot of things happened one thing after another. My father passed away, and I had grown up riding horses competitively and grown up on a horse farm. And my father passed away and left me his horse, and I hadn't ridden in a number of years, about five or six years, mm -hmm. because I couldn't afford to while I was in college because I was, you know, waiting. Yeah, horses are expensive, but for those who don't know. There, it's almost as expensive as triathlon, if not more, <laughs> if you can believe it. Um, at least triathlon generally is a 
<clears throat> one and done kind of big big expense as far as your bike and things like that or all the equipment mm-hmm. but then the courses are a monthly overhead so I uh so all of a sudden I inherited mm-hmm. this expensive animal that I now had to feed and right. was still trying to figure out how to feed myself and um mm-hmm. yeah so that was a little frustrating so I changed majors to equine business management which stands for you know basically training horses and managing mm-hmm. a horse mm-hmm. farm and you were aware, uh, you were aware of your diagnosis at the time, so you knew blindness was in the short term, yeah, mid term, long term. Yeah, and so I was just trying to figure out, like, okay, what can I get my? What do I have enough credits to graduate in right now? And what 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 do I actually care about? And so I love horses, so maybe this is a sign from above. And so, um, so I finished with school, and uh, but I'm still working in the wine business uh, at night, and no longer able to see to drive at night. So someone suggested I go to retail. And so I, I moved over to the retail end of the business because it was during the day and better mm-hmm. lighting, a little bit slower pace than running around a restaurant at night. Um, and I really enjoyed it and became quite successful. And then I ended up having a, a very good long career in that. And I knew that no matter what happened with my vision, mm-hmm. I would always have a job and a roof over my head because my nose and my palate were the most important things because my job was tasting, tasting and assessing and buying wine for my chain of stores that I worked for. So there's so, a perception, there's a perception in the world that when you lose one sense, the other ones compensate for it. What I guess I just heard you say is your palate, um, hypercompensated for your loss of vision. That true for sure and well and I, I don't know if it necessarily became better but it was something that you have, were forced to focus on more and um mm-hmm. and that you you use differently than when you have when when you have full vision so mm-hmm. it was you know definitely definitely more acute and um i really i really enjoyed it and so i figured out how to make a living at it and became a sommelier or a wine expert and uh and as my vision deteriorated and i stopped driving i was still able to you know maintain a career in the wine business until I became, you know, my disease is an autoimmune condition. So every time I got exposed to a bacteria or virus, it would trigger an immune response and cause me to lose more eyesight. So initially I lost about 70% of my peripheral vision from right to left and top to bottom. And, um, but I was still legal to drive barely, but I was still legal to drive until about 11 years ago, 12 years, 12 years ago, I guess now. Um, and then I had bronchitis and that wiped away most of my remaining vision. So now I'm down to about 2% of usable vision in my right eye. And, um, so for those listening in, what does 2% usable vision in your right eye mean? What is, what are some things you can see and can't see? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if I'm making eye contact with you at a conversational di- distance of about five feet away, I can see your right eye, part of your nose and part of your forehead, but not the rest of your face. I can't see your mouth. I can't see your forehead. I can't see your hair. I can't see your mm-hmm. ears. I can only see that little, t- it's like looking through a keyhole or a straw. Mm-hmm. Um, and every, and everything else is black around that spot. Um, so the further away from you I am, like if I'm 10 feet away, I can probably see your whole face. And if I'm 20 feet away, I might be able to see you down to your shoulders. And if I'm 30 feet away, I can probably see you down to your waist or maybe down to your knees. Okay. <laughs> so it pans out. So the further away things are, the better for me. Um, so I can see the whole thing. You know, so uh, in a movie theater, like if I go to a movie, I'll sit all the way in the back right corner and then I can see about two thirds of the screen. Um, so that's, that's, that's a win, except action movies are really lost on me because I'll be like, what just happened? <laughs> Where so, did I go? <laughs> you know? So, so going to, really taking well. that, taking that idea that you go to the back right corner, you can see two thirds of the movie screen. How does that fit into your, um, triathlon world? So, so we, well, hold people's hands through aspect. the, hold, hold people's hands through the concept of how paratriathlon is um, structured and organized. Cause people just think that paratriathlon means you're swimming with people with no arms and legs and competing against them and hold people's right. hands. Well, that. one of the things to add insult to injury. So my vision, what I have what's called photopsia, which is strobing and flashing. So everything is constantly strobing and flashing. So I see flashing white lights in front of my eyes all, all the time. Mm-hmm. So if I'm looking at you, it's kind of like a TV camera that's cutting in and out. Uh, like a bad signal on a mm-hmm. on an old mm-hmm. old black and white TV where you like want to hit the hit the top of the television and make it you know tune in mm-hmm. with your the rabbit ears back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, so things cut in and out. And so the higher my heart rate is, the less I can see because the faster that flashing occurs. So above a heart rate of one sixty five, I have no vision whatsoever. My vision whites out entirely because the flashing becomes so bright I can't see anything. Um, so, so back to Tasmania, when you were at the end, when you said rock and roll for that last 800 meters, was that you telling, I Hey, Kirsten, I am not seeing anything for the next yeah. minute. And she knows, yeah. Okay. And she's raced with me long enough to know that that's, that's the case and that, that I'm entirely dependent upon her. Wow. So 
with, with paratriathlon, the way it works, there's, I'm going to screw this up. I think there's five different disability categories. There's wheelchair uh, and wheelchairs divided up into H1, H2, H3. And that's, that's based on the level of impairment. So okay. just because you're in a wheelchair doesn't mean you can't use your legs. Um, so certain wheelchair athletes have spasticity in their legs where they can kick a little bit in the swim. Um, and then some have none where their legs actually sink and they actually have to have like a wear like a neoprene bottom, like a wetsuit bottom. Even if it's a non-wetsuit legal race, they're allowed to wear wetsuit bottoms, um, like the lava pants or whatever they're called, uh, in order to get, get, give their legs flotation. And a lot of times they'll actually wear a brace to hold their legs together because otherwise their legs flop wildly and actually cause a lot of drag. Mm. So there's H, H1 is considered the most impaired, H2 is moderately impaired, and H3 is, um, mm-hmm. is the least impaired. I didn't and know that. Then, okay. Yep. So then, um, and then you've got PT, uh, paratriathlon two, which is considered severe impairment. So that's usually somebody whose amputate leg is amputated above the knee, um, or that both legs are impaired, um, Mm -hmm. in, in some way, either double amputation or one, one has nerve damage and the other one's, um, amputated, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's PT two, uh, excuse me, PT three, which is considered moderate impairment, which can be any number of different amputations of the leg, um, you know, and paralysis and things like that. And then four, same thing is, is considered mild impairment. That's usually um, a below the knee amputee or sometimes an arm amputee. Mm-hmm. And it's based on like a score that a physical therapist or a team of physical therapists gives that athlete. They have a classification that they have to go through where there's like a panel of doctors and PTs that assess their mm-hmm. different strengths and mobility and stuff like that. And then there's PT5, which is considered the least impaired. And again, those are usually arm amputees because they're able to run, you know, quite fast because um, they don't have to put on a prosthesis on their leg. Mm-hmm. And then finally, there's PTVI, which is paratriathlon visually impaired, and that's the category that I race in. And there's three different levels of impairment within that category, just mm-hmm. like the wheelchair, where there's uh, PTVI1, which is con- considered totally blind or almost totally blind. They may be able to see shapes and colors, but that's about it. PT2, which is where they can see some sh- shapes and colors, but their acuity, their central vision, like is very, mm-hmm. very blurry, so they can't read or recognize faces. And then finally, there's PT uh, VI3, which is me, which is no peripheral vision. They have cent- We have central vision. So, so when you uh, line up to go course. race, everybody in that heat or that wave is PPVI3? No, every, there's PT, uh, that's a good question. It's uh, PTVI 2 and 3. The, the VI1s get a 3 minute and 48 second head start on us. Where did so that come work. from? 3 minutes, 48 seconds. What is that? That is a really awful, awful amount of time for those of you who are sprint distance athletes. That's like 5% of my race or more mm-hmm. um, or 7% of my race. So uh, apparently they came up with that number from uh, para swimming and para track and field. They came up with some sort of algorithm of the difference between totally sighted and partially sighted athletes, and they average it together. The problem is, is that we have transitions and also right. That's where I was going have, with this. And we have the bike, and so you know, if if I were to if if I were to wave a magic wand and make it fair, in my opinion, is they we would just take away the transitions. You know, take away the transitions, like give everybody a three minute transition or something like that and call it a day or something. So Um, not score the the transitions. You're saying just the transitions would be subtracted from the total time. Something like that, because Mm -hmm. right, the only advantage that I have over somebody who's totally blind is the fact that I can find my helmet and I can find my shoes Mm -hmm. in transition and put them on myself. I don't need my guide to hand them to me. Um, unless my, again, unless my heart rate's super high and then I can't, then I need her to do it. <laughs> well, in transition, um, your heart rate's probably not going to be super high. Uh, it depends on the day. <laughs> um, <laughs> depends on how cold that swim was. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so, I mean, that, that's the only advantage because at the end of the day, you know, you're racing with a guide in the swim and you're racing with a guide on the run. So, and there's really no difference and I'm not sighting, you know, like I'm not sighting mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for when I'm swimming. So I don't have an advantage over them. So that's, you know, it's, it's, it's a, a big bone of contention, but it's not going to change until after Tokyo. And, and once I don't think, and a lot of us who are PTVI twos and threes don't think that the class, that, that rule will change until, 
somebody who is a B1 has won world championships or won a medal in Tokyo. Okay. And then they'll say, okay, maybe it's too big of a factor. Like, right. so. Since we're a podcast and triathletes and ultra runners are with us, I'm going to ask you to go through some of the stuff that you go through that might be different to us. So what's check-in like for you? Oh, it is a <laughs> I should show, pardon the, pardon the language, but it's, um, it's a very, this is an 18 plus podcast. Here. Oh, good. <laughs> so, um, we have the day before the race, we have athlete briefing, mandatory athlete briefing for, mm-hmm. um, all the paratriathlon categories where so they, they go over the rules, they go over the course, um, check in. Uh, so you get your, the day before you get your stickers for your bike and your helmet and your mm-hmm. bags. Um, and you don't get your cap and your chip until the morning of the race. Um, that's pretty much the same for the rest of us too. Yeah. So the check-in is when, when I check in, I have to have my wetsuit ready because they have to inspect my wetsuit to make sure there's no sponsor logos on it or things like that. Um, they have to inspect our uniforms front and back to make sure that our sponsor logos are of a certain size or less. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's no, the gorilla marketing rules to make sure that you're not like having a giant, like Roka, you know, across there that's mm-hmm. too, like the letters are giant for TV or whatever. Okay. Um, and then they inspect our tethers. So when I race with Kirsten as my guide, uh, I'm tethered to her in a swim mm-hmm. and run. So the run tether is allowed to be, um, I think it's, it's like a foot and a half. I forget what that is in meters, but it's about a foot and a half. And it has to be of an elastic material and it has to be brightly colored. So they photograph it and then they mm. measure the length of it. And then the same thing with the, t- the swim tether is allowed to be eight tenths of a meter or 80 centimeters long. And uh, it's allowed to stretch up to one and a half meters. So they measure it, they take pictures of it. And then finally, uh, what else do they do? Um, Oh, and then they inspect your helmet. And and then they measure our bikes. The tandem bike is only allowed to be of certain lengths. So they measure the length of our bikes, and then they scan it to make sure that we don't have a motor in there, which which would be sure. kind of funny. But, so your bike's been uh, since you said you're, um, everything you do is non-draft. Does that mean who's ever in front's an arrow or do you guys ball have to yes. use drop handlebars? Yeah. Yes. Both. We have both. So I have, I have arrow, arrow bars and, and drops and just depends on the course. Mm, um, okay. so we have the options like last year in love song and Switzerland and for those that raced age group there, it was a very technical course with a lot of climbing. And so we definitely needed the drops and, uh, but in Tokyo, we, we raced for the test event last summer, which is on the same course that we'll be racing for the Olympics this next summer. Um, that was a lot of straight time trialing with some 180s at, at either end. So, okay. you know, definitely an arrow. arrow so when that. you're on it, because again, this is again, people who I'm including myself in this one. We don't know what this is like because we've never ridden on a tandem trying to go at threshold. When you climb, mm-hmm. do you jump out of the saddle just like the rest of us do? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it has to be coordinated. It has to be discussed between the pilot and the stoker. So the pilot mm-hmm. is the, obviously the person on the front, and the stoker is considered the person on the back of the tandem. Mm-hmm. And so we that's because they're stoked know, to be there, right? I'm right. Kidding. Well, you're, I'm stoking, you're stoking the, the fire. Stoking the I know. Plane. I get it. Yeah, yeah. Stoking so, the fire. Yeah. So um, yeah. So we usually pre-discuss it before, or we, you know, we we always mm-hmm. pre-ride the course, and um, and so we'll be like, okay, this is a good spot to stand, or like. And sometimes it just happens where, you know, you just, you can't sit anymore on a climb and you're just like, I got to get up. You're you're um, preaching to the choir there. I get that. Yeah. So, I mean, but again, it has to be, you know, it has to be discussed. Mm -hmm. Otherwise you will tip the bike over. Mm, Yeah. I can't, that doesn't sound cool at all. So, um, let me ask you this because now you're training more seriously than when you're before you were blind. Correct. Right. Oh, for sure. Oh, I wasn't training all before I was blind. Oh, I never okay. did a triathlon before. So when when you are um, doing your distance is sprint, right? You don't you don't do Olympic yes. or half or anything like that. Sprint distance? No, sir. Yeah, sir. Holy capoli! I'm proud. Of you. <laughs> I was, so when I you when you awesome. tell us tell everybody what's your how fast are you trying to run when you get off the bike and you put on your running shoes and you got a five k in front of you? What's your targets? Well, the goal is a twenty minute five k off the bike. I haven't hit okay. it yet, but that's the, that's the goal. Um, right. And so you're holding a heart rate of hard. if everything if if the stars were aligned, what would that heart rate be? I don't look be? at it. I don't look at it. What um, about afterwards? Don't you and your coach like debrief and look at the numbers and say, oh, "What yeah, the?" Oh yeah, it's in the one. It's in the one eighties. Holy cow! Know? I can't do that. Yeah, I, I die. Yeah, it, it feels a lot like dying. Um, <laughs> death, it, at that point, death, mm-hmm. death seems easier. Um, yeah, it's usually like one eighty three, you know, one eighty four. And what are you? Like what are your? What do you have a cadence goal you're trying to hit? Nope. Whatever nope. it takes. Uh, just on the bike, 20. yes. On the on the bike, yes. On the run, no. I mean, like I I have a very high run cadence anyway. I'm usually between ninety five and ninety seven. So like I okay. that's which is all right. So really you're measuring ideal. that then? Okay. 
So you said you do. I, you, I know it, but it's not something that we're working on so, changing because I've always been there. So um, you and Kirsten, so do you guys each have a? Do you have your own power meter? Uh, we do now. Um, right. That's new for both of us. That has been challenging because the only way to measure power on a tandem for the pilot and the stoker is pedal-based power meters. And right. we, neither one of us financially was able to afford that before. Um, so finally, Team USA was kind enough to, to get uh, some Garmin pedals for me. And then uh, Kirsten was able to get some for herself. Um, so now we're able to individually measure our power. Although she lives in Tennessee and I live in San Diego and we don't train together. So, um, you know, it's not like a, she puts out 200 watts. I put 200 watts when we get on the bike, it's 400 watts. It doesn't, it's not a one plus one kind of, mm-hmm. um, algorithm. So it'll be interesting once we get some data of training and racing together, using those pedal based power meters to see what the differential is. And, um, so when you're individualized works. training, are you using power or heart rate? I'm uh, in training. Uh, yeah, yeah. Training like if your power. coach says, power. I want you to yeah. go 45 power. minutes at zone two, because you power. choose zone two. Heart rate, heart rate lies. You know, I, I, I don't, I'm not a big I, I'm asking though. I mean, I interviewed yeah, a guy yeah, who yeah. ran, who rode the Giro in 1990 and he won one of the stages. And he said there was wow. no such thing as power. And so everything <laughs> he did was training back then based on um, heart rate and perceived exertion. And um, I, he said, cool. and the coach said heart rate is perceived everything. Perceived exertion, yes. Absolutely. Perceived exertion is a great barometer for training. And my coach and I use that a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and that's not something I historically used. Everything I did was, was data focused and all power, power and pace. Mm-hmm. Um, so now, you know, having to relearn some perceived exertion, which is good because, you know, watches fail and. Well, know, the history of the, the and, history of human effort is the history of perceived exertion. Right. Right. This concept right. of measurable heart rate and power and, Whatever the hell you and heck you and I make up, that didn't exist for most of the time people have been running. Whether we're running away from dinosaurs or not is irrelevant. It's just the it, the history of mankind is electronics are new. So, right. Yeah. Perceived and exertion. I, is, and I love that. Like, gotta get it. I love. I love that there's a kid. Was it Mauricio Mendez who won the Xterra World Championships or whatever? Um, real, really great kid. Super young. Doesn't need a watch. Put a wear watch, mm-hmm. like just goes out and just goes on effort, mm-hmm. and so uh, and never has and probably never will, and and you know that that can work for some people and not for others, but I mean it's really a good testament, like you know, of knowing your body and knowing knowing your knowing your limits and knowing what intensity you're you're mm-hmm. racing and training at, which is really really smart. Really, so really smart. let me fast forward here a bit because we did some deep dives on topics that I wasn't expecting to, but I'm sure people are appreciating here. So you have this message that. I found when I go digging for you on the internet, it says one does not need sight to have vision. Where did that come from? Um, gosh. Uh, well, I mean, I, 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 did you come up with that or did somebody say, Hey, this kind of fits you or did you swipe it from somebody or where did that come from? I love uh, it by the way. Not that my opinion matters. Well, I think, I think that came after I had the blessing of going to Boston Marathon. I didn't race. I was racing the 5K there, but I was there supporting mm-hmm. a bunch of friends of mine who were running. And it, it has the biggest concentration of blind runners in, in the world at, at, at Boston Marathon. They never would have known that. 70 blind runners there and the California International Marathon, um, which is the U.S. Blind Marathon Championships. And so I was at Boston Marathon and a friend of mine, uh, Jason Romero, had a documentary um, mm-hmm. filmed about him. He ran the circumference of Puerto Rico while blind um, with using a jogger stroller from Thule with headlights <laughs> on the front of it. Holy while his cow. mother, While his mother drove a Subaru station wagon behind him to light the road for him. And so it was like an incredibly inspiring story. And what 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 where i came up with that was i had watched this film and one of the things that uh before i sat down to watch it we were watching like a preview uh Mm -hmm. before the marathon a friend of mine who's totally blind he said amy you know you have decent central vision would you mind being our narrator for the film because they don't have because normally for blind people normally you have like a a, a, Mm -hmm. uh on-screen uh description of of what's going on of the action but they hadn't added that to this film yet and he said would Mm -hmm. you would you do us the honors and tell us what's happening on the screen i was like Sure. So there's a room of like, you know, 60 blind people. And here I am having to narrate this film. And it felt like such a huge responsibility. I was like, oh my gosh, I have to describe what's happening and make sure I don't miss anything. And so I'm. But it needed to be somebody like you because the uh, blind people need somebody who've got the been there, done that on these descriptions to get the whole thing. Right. 
you know, like I had, yeah, but on the one hand, I hadn't been on the, the totally blind side of things. So I didn't really, I was so nervous about the responsibility and mm-hmm. I wanted to make sure that I was capturing it effectively. And so, you know, the guy's running up the hill in the pouring rain, the, the, like the camera goes down to his shoes and you can see blood like collecting on the toe box because his feet yeah. were so raw and bleeding from all the blisters and his feet were like super mangled. And then he pulls over to the side of the road and he takes his shoes off and his mom brings out a fresh pair and he's bandaging his toes and, and it's pouring rain. He's got a headlamp on and it's nighttime. And so, and then you just see the silhouette of him in front of the car, like standing by the side of the road, bandaging his feet in the pouring rain. And so I'm describing this for everybody. And, and, um, and it was like, so it was exhausting and exhilarating at the same time. And then my friend Randy, after the movie, he says, Oh my God, that was amazing. It was such a great movie. I said, what are you talking about? You didn't see it. He goes, I did. I saw it through your eyes. And he's like, you did a great job. And so mm. again, like that's when I thought like, gosh, you don't need sight to have vision. And, um, because you, you can always picture these things in your head. And Randy's this amazing hiker where he's hiked Mount Kilimanjaro. He's done like the 40 tallest peaks in New Hampshire all in one calendar year. Um, and he has no vision at all. And so, but his wife describes things for him and he's like, Amy, it's just like, I, it's just like, I always saw just like, in a, just in a slightly different way. So it was very inspiring to me. And I do know that, um, my disease will take the rest of my vision at some point, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's a progressive disease. I we're I'm beating the odds. I'm the first patient over the age of 40 that has any usable vision with this disease, but I will be totally blind at some point. So it's really inspiring and encouraging to know that when that does happen, I'm just going to be able to see in a different way. And thanks to, thanks to people like Randy that pointed that out for me. Well, gosh, I, so, yeah. I, that's a choke me up kind of thing. Listening to it from regardless of whether or not I can see or not, the, the descriptor you use for that fellow running, what was his name? Jose? Uh, uh, Jason. Yep. Jason. I got yeah. it. I mean, I got a visualization partly because I've had the bloody toes from ultra marathon, right. but oh, partly because I could, so ima- I mean, I added the darkness to it. I added a fog to it. I added a um, wind factor to it just because when you get this right? idea of a, a car with lights on in pouring rain, shoes off, bandaging. I mean, I mean I'm assuming white tape, even though you never yep. said that. That's what I'm assuming. Right. So I add, right. I'm taking your puzzle and I'm adding, right? I'm adding four, four down right. and 56 across yeah, yeah. and 13 down. Yeah, yeah. It's like you add to the puzzle as you tell the story. And that's yeah. why somebody like you has to do it. Why somebody like me can't do it. I, I wouldn't know that if I said one, four, seven, the next number is 10, whereas you would automatically <laughs> say, of course it's 10. What's wrong with you? <laughs> so, um, who are some of your advocates? early on in this when you said, you know, I'm going to learn how to ride a bike at 20 plus miles an hour and run up 650 pace for how long I have to in order to um, be one of the best triathletes in the world. Who were some of the people that said, great idea. Um, what can I do to help? I, I literally started triathlon by happy accident. I had was a swimmer back in high school and or for the time I was five until I was graduated high school. I was a breaststroker and a backstroker, but I hadn't been in a pool in about 20 years to swim laps. And a friend of mine had suggested I get back in the water because I gained 75 pounds from all the steroids that they had put me on uh, to, to slow down my disease. And I was Holy clothing changing, Batman. Yeah. So it's like, well, you know, two, over 200 pounds and just really uh, embarrassed and upset with my body and frustrated. Mm-hmm. And so I got back in the pool and there was uh, at the local YMCA and um, eventually worked up to about 10 or 15 laps, very slow mm-hmm. doing breaststroke. And someone mm-hmm. suggested, Oh, there's a fundraiser coming up for the Y it's going to be a semathon. You swim a mile and you raise like a dollar a mile. And I thought, Oh, well, like I haven't swam a mile in 20 years, but I'll try. It's going to take me a really long time, but we'll see how mm-hmm. this goes. Mm-hmm. It took me forever. But after that, I kind of got the, the fire lit under me and I thought, gosh, right. well, you know, maybe there's a master's group. Maybe I can get fast enough to start swimming with them. And I'm like, oh gosh, you know, maybe I'll need my own lane. Like, how does that even work? I'm going to run into people, but everybody was so inviting. And then I started taking spin classes because I wanted, that sounded really fun and the music sounded great. And, and everybody was like high fiving mm-hmm. when they walked out of there and like in such a great mood and the instructor was so infectious. And so I started doing that with my guide dog, like laying in the corner with cotton balls stuffed in his ear because there's like, you know, rock oh, music right. playing That's super right. loud. And so he's like, are we done yet? And then um, I finally, I really wanted to run because I had now lost about 40 pounds swimming and running, but I knew that, that, uh, or swimming and biking, but I knew that running was going to take the last bit off of me. 
but I couldn't figure out how to run safely by myself outside because I couldn't see. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, treadmill looks super dangerous. And all I could think of was all those YouTube videos of people like falling off the back of a treadmill. And I did, I was already stuck out when I walked into the gym because I hear I am walking in with a guide dog and I'm blind. And so they're like, and people were constantly like trying to help me. At least you weren't walking into a gun range with a guide dog because that would have totally freaked you out. That would be way funnier and way cooler. Um, In Iowa, I can have a gun license. Blind people can have a gun license. South Carolina Iowa, can, too. I don't know who in the world would ever go hunting with a blind person. Hey, John, you hear that? <laughs> Boom! Somebody, somebody really <laughs> what was that? I don't know, but I heard it. <laughs> <laughs> so literally, it's still legal in Iowa, huh? That's yeah, crazy. Yeah, in Iowa. So I guess I'm moving there. Mm-hmm. No, I'm kidding. So um, so I started running, holding onto the, the bar on the front of the treadmill, and I put an elastic TheraBand around my back and and tied it to either either side of the treadmill so I didn't fall off the back. Okay, that's logical. So locked, okay. Locked, locked myself in there and then started walking on an incline and eventually jogging and then I mm-hmm. started officially running. And someone through social media, Caroline Gaynor, or Caroline Gaynor, she uh, was living in New York City at the time and was um, uh, actually a volunteer with Team Red, White, and Blue, which is a veterans nonprofit. Mm-hmm. Um, and also she had guided several athletes for Ironman and sprint distance races and she offered to guide me. And so I went to this expo called Trimania with her at Columbia University. It's and my alma mater. Yeah, yeah. They had a great triathlon expo there. And I did a swim clinic there and met other paratriathletes. And uh, someone actually offered me a tandem that I could use for my very first huh. race. And it was uh, old Motobacan steel tandem that was built for two six-foot-tall men. Carolyn is five-foot-two. I'm five-foot-six. And we could barely reach the pedals with the seats all the way down. And we did our first race on June 27th, seven years ago. And, uh, and we had the most fun. We dropped the chain on the very first hill and we were laughing the whole time and just had the greatest time. And, you know, oh. I, I crossed that finish line and, so, and she said, you are a triathlete. I'm like, I'm, I'm like, I'm a what? You know, at, you know, at <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> years, at 37 years old, I was like, what? At 37 years old and blind, I was like, that was not something I was imagining of being associated with my, my, my name at that point. And so I was super excited. And I was like, okay, when are we doing the next one? So then I did New York City Triathlon, which is a um, mm-hmm. Olympic distance. And through that, um, Challenge Athlete Foundation offered me a scholarship to come out to San Diego and participate in one of their camps. And then from mm. there, USA, USA Triathlon was having a talent ID camp in Baltimore, Maryland. And that's how I got on the radar for them. And then eventually I made, I did my first international race in Texas and did Pan Ams there, finished on the podium. And then I made You, hit, you hit podium on your first go round? Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty cool. That's pretty darn and, uh, rare is what that is. Well, I just, I like, I like going fast. It's fun, especially the bike. Yeah. And then finally, um, you know, I made the national team in 2016 and, and here we are, uh, four years later. Wow. So now I'm on the national, so now I'm on the national team and racing with Kirsten and, um, I have a couple backup guides as well. And, you know, we're going for a slot for Tokyo, which is look, looking, knock on wood, likely. Um, I'm currently ranked number six in the world, and they take the top ten women. Um, but yeah, I saw that before two, the call. Yeah, they only take two Americans. So me, it would be me and my teammates. So, like, the goal is for the two of us to both be there. And so currently we're both in a good position. She's ranked number four, and I'm ranked number six. So Wow, how cool would that yeah. be? That would be super yeah. cool. So yeah, I want to try to bring everything to an end for folks with a super positive note, and but I also want it to be kind of in, introspectual on your side. If, you know, I'm a, I'm an adamant I'm an ad, advocate of gratitude being very important, and I think our attitude affects our gratitude perhaps more than anything else, and vice versa with that. Tell me a good thing about becoming blind, so everybody else can hear. Oh, uh, I was an asshole before. <laughs> So we're going to say blindness I, removes one's lower character skills or whatever? Yes. <laughs> no, I, I think that it taught me empathy. For, actually, I know that mm. it taught me empathy for sure. You know, I was, I worked in the wine business. I had a big job and I I was very self-important. And, um, mm. and I think that, um, you know, I, I was, I'm a bit of a workaholic and I, I get that from a really, you know, awesome mother who is also the same wired the right. same way. And, um, you know, if you want work, want something, you work really hard for it. And so I don't have a lot of patience mm-hmm. for people that don't have a similar work ethic or drive. And, and, but I also didn't, 
think about, you know, everybody has a story that, and everybody has something going on that you know nothing about. That's also none of your business. Um, mm-hmm. you know, like, and so, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's just because you know, you don't know that that person's got a sick child at home or their husband has a chronic illness or, um, they have a sick parent or they have an autoimmune disease that's invisible to you or, or any, or they, or their husband just lost their job or mm. they're about to get laid off or any number of things that again, none of your business, but like you, everybody needs to have that, that, um, giving somebody else a pass because, you know, again, it's not their responsibility to share their, their, their struggles with you, you know, unless they choose to. Um, but you know, we try to, we all try to present our, our best selves, but you know, let's be honest, we're not always our best selves. You know, like I, I, I hope that like when I get off a bad phone call and I'm really angry or pissed off or whatever, that like the Mm -hmm. first person I meet is going to be really (laughs) empathetic or sympathetic and be like, Hey, you know, like, I'm, are you having a bad day? (laughs) You know, like that kind of thing. And so we don't always get that moment of grace. And so I think it's really important to know that, um, uh, there, there's things going on behind the scenes and it, it has definitely taught me empathy because, you know, so many of my teammates are amputees or have PTSD. A lot of them are Afghanistan, Iraq veterans. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've shared hotel rooms with these guys where they have horrible night terrors or they have phantom leg pain because, you know, they've had an amputation, but you know, their body still thinks there's a leg there. So they have excruciating nerve pain that no amount of drugs is going to take care of. And they just have to breathe through it and you're holding their hand and like, talking them through it and it's excruciating to watch and witness and and until you've been around somebody like that, like you cannot appreciate it. And so, you know, and I've been through 33 surgeries and two years of chemotherapy to deal with my disease. And I I don't wish that Mm -hmm. upon anybody, but I feel like, you know, my hell is, is, it feels nothing in compared to some of the people that I, that I, that I coach and work with and that I race with. So I feel really, really blessed. Um, having lost my vision that it's really taught me to open my eyes to what's going on around me. Wow. So I'm going to meet you at some point. I don't know when you might be totally blind at that time. So you'll have to remember my voice, but when you'll I see you, you'll be amazingly handsome in my mind. Right. So, <laughs> <laughs> so when I, when I see you, I'm just going to say, Hey, it's Jeff. And I'm just going to kiss you and embrace you because you've touched my heart today. And you just hug me back. You don't have to say a piece. <laughs> um, this was an amazing thing, and I hope a lot of people can get something out of this, that um, there's positives that come from uh, the most crazy of things that happen. And I, for one, will be cheering for you in Tokyo in 2021. Ah, uh, Thank you, thank you, thank you. Fingers, Thanks for being on Threshold Stories. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this chapter of Threshold Stories, Crossing Thresholds, One Story at a Time. Ready to cross more thresholds with me in two weeks. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me directly. You can find me on LinkedIn or on my Facebook page at Jeff Gora Team USA. 